Hi, I'm Channing. And I'm Elise. And this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand that scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain really compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. Welcome back to the Faithful Feminist Podcast. This week, we're covering Matthew and Luke chapter 3 and Mark chapter 1 for the dates January 23rd through the 29th. These chapters cover two main things. First is the narration of some of John the Baptist's travels and teachings and the event of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And that's a mouthful, so say it three times fast. Um, we've already covered three, uh, writers or figures of the New Testament so far in previous episodes, Matthew, Luke, and John, but this week we encounter the author of the final of the four gospels, and that is Mark. So who is Mark? Well, some people believe that Mark was a companion of Peter, the primary apostle after the death of Jesus, and that his gospel was therefore the most accurate because of his proximity to firsthand witnesses. From an essay titled The Gospel of Mark by Marilyn Mellows, Mellows writes, quote, While the work is attributed to Mark, we will probably never know the author's true identity, for it was common practice in the ancient world to enhance the importance of written works by attributing them to famous people, end quote. And if you've read ahead, you'll notice that Mark's style of writing is repetitive and simple, especially if you're fresh from reading like Luke or Matthew. Author James Keith Elliott writes an essay titled The Gospel of Mark, quote, Matthew's gospel was unlikely to have been the first gospel written. Instead, Mark's gospel, allegedly because of its relative simplicity of language, style, and theology, was prior to Matthew and to Luke. It can be shown that Matthew and Luke, in using and copying from Mark, improved upon his simple work, end quote. In this episode, instead of working through the three chapters of Matthew, Luke, and Mark individually, we're going to combine them all together to create one narrative of Jesus' baptism. Starting with Mark, Mark begins his gospel with John the Baptist, introducing him in verse 2 as, quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preaching baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, end quote. Mark Both Mark and Matthew provide a visual of John, describing him as the following, quote, clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of leather about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey, end quote. Many people came to be baptized by John the Baptist. They listened to him preach and asked him lots of questions. In Luke chapter 3, verse 10, the people ask, quote, what shall we do? John responds saying, quote, he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. 
To the tax collectors, John says, exact no more than that which is appointed you. To the soldiers, John says, do violence unto no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. These teachings were so radical to the people at the time that in verse 15, we read that, quote, all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, end quote. Additionally, Matthew and Luke both tell us that during one of the baptisms, the Pharisees and Sadducees come to watch the events unfold. We really like the way that Luke writes this iconic verse. In the words of John, Luke 3.16 says, John answered, saying unto them, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the people gathered, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And soon after, Matthew tells us in chapter 3, verse 13, Then cometh Jesus unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and thou comest to me? Jesus replies in verse 15, Suffer it be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. We know that the King James Version can be really poetic and contain a lot of imagery, but also sometimes the language trips us up. Even as Elise and I are reading it, sometimes we're like, oh my gosh, the language is not always like stringed together in an easy way to read. And so sometimes we like to refer to other versions or other translations of the Bible to offer additional understandings or alternative language to increase the comprehension of the verse. So for this verse, Verse, the word suffer, we were really curious about. Other translations of the Bible offer these alternatives for the word suffer. The new, the new International Version and the English Standard Version say instead, suffer as let it be, and John consented. The New American Standard Bible says that Jesus asked John to allow this to happen, and John allowed it. And the New Living Translation says that Jesus said it should be done, and John agreed. So hopefully that offers a little bit more language and... Yeah, and I was... So so it's really strange coming from last year working in the Hebrew Bible and this year working in the New Testament because last year the Hebrew Bible had so many chapters and so many stories, and this year we're working with like three chapters, all that are kind of echoing or repeating the same story. And so there's really one primary focus, at least that stood out to me. And obviously that's like baptism and Jesus's baptism. And in the church, I feel like I learned that Jesus was baptized as an example of his holiness. Like he didn't need to be baptized because he was perfect and he wasn't, didn't like, didn't have any sin, but he was just such a great guy that he wanted to show his solidarity with all of us other sinners. But if that makes me think, though, if baptism is really all about cleansing ourselves from personal sins, then why did Jesus even have to do it? And I think the verses that you read in Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, give us some context. When the crowds are asking John, like, what are we supposed to do when we get baptized? And John replies, whoever has two coats must share them with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. And the tax collectors and the soldiers ask similar questions. What should we do? And John says, collect no more the amount prescribed for you for the tax collectors. And to the soldiers, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. And in each of these responses, 
John's explanation of the baptismal covenant, the meaning and the responsibilities of baptism seem to be far less personal and individual than they are like social and systemic. And as such, it seems that baptism is a charge and a commitment to social justice and a divestment from systems of oppression. From an article titled Jesus Baptism as a Social Protest from Renewed Heart Ministries, they write, quote, Repentance is a paradigm shift where you begin to think about things differently. And so John's baptism of repentance symbolized rethinking how society was structured in relation to power and privilege who was included and benefited, and who was excluded, and on whose backs the elites profited, end quote. In this light, we can understand the story of Jesus' baptism to be about rejecting unjust institutions and unjust power. The article continues saying, Jesus' baptism was a rejection of the way Rome had oppressed Jewish society and how Jewish elites had become complicit in Roman oppression of Jewish people. Jesus' baptism meant rejecting these social constructions, especially the elitist ordering of power, privilege, and profit, end quote. And in this context, if we are truly trying to follow in Jesus' footsteps, there needs to be quite a change in the way that we approach and understand baptism in the church. Yeah, someone I follow on Instagram, Lily, at the account Dear Mormon Me, also offers an invitation to rethink baptism and shares some reflections on the so-called like choices that one is allotted in the LDS church. And in Dear Mormon Me's stories, they shared about how from the day we are born, if we're born into the church, we're expected to be baptized into the church. The so-called choice in this scenario is to be baptized, to be part of this church, or don't be baptized, and if you're not baptized, then you risk damnation and losing your family forever. So there's, like, what other choice is there? Those don't really feel like equal choices. <laughs> and of this, Lily writes, quote, I was taught my whole life that this was the only way to true happiness. Why would I choose anything else? What other choices of equal value were presented to me? This impact of this baptismal choice is compounded by the heavy expectations that follow this decision. I was not capable of understanding the lifelong expectations I would be held to following my baptism. Not to mention I was too young to be aware of, let alone understand the complexities of the history and truth claims of the church. Those are things only a fully informed adult could comprehend. And yet, as an eight-year-old, I was expected to dedicate the entire rest of my life to this church. And I did just as I was taught to do, end quote. So as we're recalling the way that our church practices baptism in this way, with heavy emphasis on like cleanliness and commitment to the church institution, even before we are fully able to understand to what it is we are committing, it makes me even more desirous to rethink the rite or the ritual of baptism in terms of commitment to social justice. Because truly, Jesus' baptism was a catalyst for the next three years of his life that were filled with radical rejection and objection to systems of oppression. And that ultimately had a very high cost. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that you uh, quoted Lily. I saw this post come up in my own feed uh, earlier this week. And uh, I'm sure that I've shared, <laughs> I'm sure that I've shared this before, but I actually am a parent to two kids. And my daughter got baptized uh, just over a year ago, and having gone through my own faith transition and uh, living in a mixed faith marriage, um, navigating her baptism process was really 
it was honestly traumatic, <laughs> like due to circumstances outside of mine or my family's control. But um, I remember trying to prepare for her baptism and really trying to walk her through the process of this is what the church teaches baptism is about. But this is this is another way to think about baptism, right? It's a promise to be like Jesus. And you can change your mind at any time. And it's not a commitment to the church. And if you don't get baptized, we love you and Jesus loves you. And if you do get baptized, we love you and Jesus loves you. And allowing her the autonomy to make her own choices, um, being on the other side of my own experiences of baptism and commitment that were not (laughs) based on informed consent um, was really difficult for me. And I remember uh, after her baptism, I didn't have any control over who gave the talks or or what content the talks had. Um, But I remember one of the speakers kind of sharing that baptism was about um, cleanliness. And I remember thinking, What possibly can this eight-year-old girl who stays up at night with her perfectionism and her anxiety about being good and being kind and doing good always, what does she possibly have to repent for? Like, what is there to forgive? And I found myself, as I was reading the chapters this week, so much comfort in um, reading Jesus choosing to be baptized because in the same situation too, what was there to forgive? What was there for Jesus to repent for? And I was so grateful as a parent um, who has been through that same experience to find some companionship between my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, and Jesus at the time. What is there to repent of? What is there to be forgiven? And I really appreciate this reframing of baptism as a commitment to care for and love other people in our community and less about um, cleanliness and repentance um, and sin. So thank you. Like, I really think actually that you've offered us a huge, a huge gift in this reframe. Well, sorry, I'm like so emotional. That's fair. That I remember that being like the emotions that you're experiencing right now, I feel like is just a small glimpse into how emotional and stressful and confusing that whole experience was. And I thought that at least as your best friend from the outside, it really seemed like you were trying to allow your daughter to make her own decisions and not make it like not, not bring all of these emotions and your own expectations or hopes and desires to her experience, but really trust that like, okay, maybe she, Maybe she can make a decision here and it doesn't have to be about cleanliness because what is there to forgive? She's an angel. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yes. You said it perfectly. (laughs) And I mean, if we're excited about this reinterpretation, please know that this is not just like, I didn't come up with these things. There are lots of people that we've pulled on that have kind of helped inform these readings. And of course, (laughs) guess who else has informed this interpretation? Rosemary Radford Ruther, whom we love. Yes. And she also has some thoughts about rethinking the rite or ritual of baptism from her book, Woman Church. And she too advocates for baptism to signify an intentional turning away from the powers and evils of personal and systemic oppression. She writes, quote, it means not only that we personally reject these powers in our minds and hearts, but also that we break the hold of these powers over our lives. 
The powers of evil are expressed in political, economic, and social systems that we neither control nor can entirely escape as long as they continue to exist. So our exodus from the power of systems of oppression is a continuing journey, both inwardly to our own consciousness and outward and outwardly as a social struggle. Baptism signifies our disaffiliation from systems of oppression and all its calls to social necessity and divine legitimacy and our commitment to a new order. End quote. And with this redefinition of baptism, surely there would need to be much more personal preparation than being baptized at eight years old because you're supposed to or because like you need to repent or because you now need to be accountable and you don't want to lose your whole family. And thankfully, Ruther helps us imagine what a new baptismal rite could look like. And I love this stuff because it moves us, I think, from critique or from even from celebration to a tangible imagining of better worlds. And what she outlines here, I don't think is, it's not like astronomically out of this world that we could never make this a new baptismal rite. It really feels tangible. And we haven't included the entire baptismal ritual here, but a few of the main moments that kind of stuck out to us. So Ruther starts the process prior even to getting baptized with a reflection period for many weeks. There's encouragement to reflect on what this turning point means for their life, for their commitments, and for their actions going forward. Theological and social justice educators might act as guides for this process in order to help reflect on how liberation from systems requires action. After this period of study and reflection, people might develop a statement of faith that describes the meaning of this conversion experience. They might ask questions like, how does this experience change my relationship to myself, my God, my society, and to the future? The initiate would also try to conceptualize what this conversion means to them in regards to their life history, past and future. They might also choose a new name or new interpretation of a given name to fit their emerging identity. On the day the person is baptized, the community, Ruther imagines the community gathering together to listen to the initiate reveal their new name and read their life story and statement of faith. Then the initiate and the community stand together and recite a lit- and recite a litany of rejection of the powers and principalities of systems of oppression. A few examples Ruther outlines, we might say, Powers of militarism, which drain our money and resources for weapons of destruction while withholding food, education, and medical service from the, from the poor, be gone. Powers of racism, which make us believe that only those who look like ourselves are valuable and which prevent us from seeing and loving the human personhood of others who appear different from ourselves, be gone. Afterwards, a basin of water and a towel are brought to the initiate and water is poured three times on their head. With each pour, more words are spoken with the final two lines. Ruther writes, May you enter the promised land of milk and honey, and grow in virtue, strength, and truthfulness of mind. And may the oil of gladness always anoint your head. Following the baptism, the new community shares the sacrament of a cup mixed with milk and honey, and a variety of sweet cakes and loaves. After kissing, singing, and holding hands, Rosemary Radford Ruther writes, quote, the community then has a party, end quote. Woohoo! Like, that makes me very, very happy. And one of the things I, one of my own personal hangups about um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the way that, like, 
it's very removed and distanced from ritual. There are rituals that we do like baptism and taking the sacrament, but there's none of the aesthetic fulfillment or enjoyment paired alongside the ritual. And so baptism, everything feels very, at least in my experience of baptism in the church, everything feels very sterile, very removed and very um, formulaic, but not in a way that feels ritualistic. And so maybe it's simply because Mormondom has been my own, my only and own experience with religiosity, but hearing Ruther describe a different type of ritual and rite for baptism, one that feels far more informed, one that feels far more personal, but also like reconciling with systems of oppression, and one that feels like a a rebirth or recommitment to something different, feels so exciting to me. And to think about ending it with a party, like I'm just, I'm just a very, very big fan of these type of to me, what seem like utopian imaginings for how we could handle baptism. And I'm really appreciative of the chapters this week because it's allowed me to think about baptism in a much more liberating, conscious, and intentional way than I was accustomed to in the church. And like surely the authors we have read and the act of Jesus's baptism teach us that baptism requires so much more from us in terms of radical commitment to dismantling systems of oppression And it seems that baptism has the potential to be a rebirthing catalyst to a life committed to following Jesus, which means standing with and fighting for the most marginalized and spending our own lives fighting for more just worlds, even if the cost is quite high. Oh my gosh, Elise, that is just such a fantastic reimagination that you outlined from Ruther's that you outlined from Rosemary Radford Ruther. And I think it really sets an exciting precedent. As we move from talking about the context and the purpose of baptism, we we encounter we encounter the event in the narrative where Jesus actually gets baptized and what kind of happens. All three of the gospels describe this particular event slightly differently. We're going to walk through the three verses in Luke, Mark, and Matthew and note the differences that we see. We think that this is important, one, because I think it's a reflection on the work that we do within the podcast, which really, I think, highlights um, the necessary differences and illuminations that varying perspectives can offer on the text, but also how a single person can look at the same event and experience it differently. And so as we kind of move through, I am just really excited to kind of walk and see what each of these authors sees. So if we first start in Luke, Luke writes, The heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. The first phrase, the heaven was opened. This is a really broad perspective, giving freedom to envision the event of heaven opening as one that perhaps all who were present at the time would have been able to witness as well. Luke also offers a more concrete or literal embodiment of the Holy Ghost. Importantly, the Holy Ghost descends in a bodily shape. Secondary to this is the shape of the body, which is like a dove. So I got really excited when I was reading this, when I was reading this verse, and there are a couple of things that we want to note here as exciting implications. The first is that this verse demonstrates an instance where the Holy Ghost is embodied. For my own self, I don't know if anyone else has experienced it this way, but in LDS context and for LDS people, typically the Holy Ghost is like 
an anomaly. It is both disembodied and sometimes embodied in LDS rhetoric. The Holy Ghost is described as both a person and not a person, a feeling, emotion, or experience, but also a figure of the Trinity or of the Godhead. So to hear from Luke that the Holy Ghost arrives in an embodied form, even if it's only temporary, is really exciting to me. Secondly, and even more exciting to us as readers and eco-feminist readers of the text, is the fact that the Holy Ghost didn't descend in the shape of an anthropomorphic or human person, but that the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape of a dove. In other words, the Holy Ghost arrived embodied as an animal, specifically a type of common bird. So often the Godhead is depicted in art as anthropomorphic two or three human-like persons, but this verse offers us the opportunity to view godhood and holiness in other embodiments. God or godliness takes many shapes in the Bible. For example, God or godliness has been a burning bush, a pillar of fire, a whirlwind. What surprises us more, that God and godliness has become human in the form of Jesus, or that God and godliness has become animal through a dove. We sometimes fall into the trap of elevating ourselves as humans above other than human beings, like animals, plants, and elements. This act is called anthropocentrism, or the belief that humanity is the most conscious and evolved of all living beings, and therefore the closest to godliness. But this verse from Luke first asks us to reconsider that stance and recognize God and godliness in all life forms. And second, it disrupts this human-imposed hierarchy of human over animal. What really stuck out to me and felt really profoundly is that in my patriarchal blessing, I was promised that I would hear God's voice in my lifetime. I don't think I've shared this on the podcast before, and I honestly don't know how I've gone this long without telling anyone, but (laughs) I am an avid backyard bird watcher. And one of my favorite and most familiar sounds in all of the many places that I've lived in my life is the constant coo of an extremely common bird called the morning dove. It took me a long time to realize that I've been hearing God's voice and the voice of godliness at all times and in all places. And that the mere act of hearing it doesn't make me special. Like the dove, God and godliness is ever-present, cooing us awake and alive over and over again. I love that. Thanks for sharing that personal experience. And that's right. I don't know if anyone knows that you are a backyard bird watcher, and that's (laughs) a really big part of your life. (laughs) Yes. If we jump over to Mark, Mark writes, And as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened, and the spirit, like a dove, dispelled. And the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Mark's account adds additional detail to Luke's, telling us that the heavens opened as Jesus came out of the water. Rather than a simple, the heavens opened, Mark tells us a bit more, saying, Jesus saw the heavens open. And this is different, right? Like, rather than an experience that was perceivable to all, this verse from Mark makes it sound more like the heavens opening was an experience for Jesus's eyes only. This is a potentially important shift in perspective that changes the witness of God's approval for Jesus' baptism from a shared experience to a personal one. Neither is better than the other. We're simply stating that these accounts are quite different. Yeah, that's correct. And Matthew even perhaps understands it both similarly and differently. 
Matthew writes, quote, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. So rather than Jesus saw the heavens open, Matthew writes, the heavens were opened unto him. And I know that we're like getting really nitty gritty into the language here, but it feels so important because the slight shifts and changes in language feel so personal. Um, And especially in this verse, the shift of the heavens opened unto him feels really personal to Jesus rather than Luke's really broad description of the heavens opened. This slight shift in language feels exciting and important. The language of this verse feels evocative. For me, as a reader, it's the difference between being asked, have you seen heaven? If someone were to ask me that question, I'd be like, I don't don't know. (laughs) But if someone were to ask me, have the heavens opened unto you? I would answer, yes, I have seen the sunlight streak through openings in the clouds, and I thought it was God for a moment. And the way that the question is asked, it really matters. The way that the sentence is written really matters because each description is going to speak to the reader differently. Matthew continues, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Matthew and Mark differ here from Luke's description of the Holy Ghost descending. Luke argues the embodiment of the Holy Ghost as a dove, but Matthew and Mark instead use the literary device of a simile, which is a figure of speech involving a comparison of one thing with another thing of a different kind, used that like that's often used to make a description more vivid or emphasized. And similes are often used with the word like or as. Matthew and Mark describe the form of the descent of the Holy Ghost like a dove, but without the assurance of a bodily shape. Now, Matthew adds an additional detail to Mark and Luke. We know first, the Holy Ghost descends, and second, in the form of a dove, or in a similar manner to a dove. But Matthew adds, and lighting upon him. I went ahead and uh, tracked down the translation from Greek to English for each of the words of this verse, because I was curious about the word lighting. The Greek word that was used for this word lighting is pronounced erhuminum, meaning come or coming. So in other words, the Holy Ghost descended in the form of a dove and came upon Jesus. Now, if I were to provide a very literal, non-romantic description of this verse, I would say something like, As Jesus came up out of the water, the sun broke through the clouds and a pigeon landed on him. <laughs> so it's it's like very straightforward, right? But humans, especially writers, are meaning-making beings. So Jesus' baptism, the heavens opening, and the dove lighting or coming upon him meant something to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Though each gospel writer provides a different perspective of the same event, and we can argue that these very descriptions highlight the differences in meaning for each of them, what is apparent, what is consistently apparent is that these events meant something to them, and they also think it means something for us, the readers. So the question that we really hope you spend some time with this week is the following. What do these events mean to you? As we move on from these verses, we want to briefly discuss a heading in the Come, Follow Me manual this week. The heading says, The members of the Godhead are three separate beings. The manual states, The Bible contains numerous evidences that the members of the Godhead are three separate beings. The accounts of the Savior's baptism are one example. As you read these accounts, ponder what you learn about the Godhead. Why are these doctrines important to you? 
This point about the LDS teaching that the Trinity or the Godhead is composed of three separate beings is important to us, less because we care about proof texting the scriptures, but because of the everyday implications of the text. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And one of the one of my like big I don't know if it's like a pet peeve or just kind of a thing that always rubs me wrong, but it feels like there's a disconnect between um, the insistence that we see God and godliness as both one thing, but also three separate things, right? If LDS folks can be so insistent on seeing God and godliness in three separate ways, why do we have such difficulty seeing God and godliness reflected in others who are different from us? We're so frequently apt to seeing God and godliness in one way, as white, cisgender, heterosexual, complementarian, male, anthropocentric. If LDS folks are hell-bent on the separate and distinct beings of godliness, it follows that there can be more room in our understanding and definition of God and godliness in others. This This leaves room for godliness to be black, trans, queer, woman, plant, animal, fungus. Why is this distinction important to me? Because the moment we apply God and godliness to transness, to blackness, to woman, to earth, is the moment we begin to respect and revere them. And that is something that I want to see. Mormon friends, we're begging you, please let our theology be as revolutionary and radical as we claim it is. At this point, Matthew's account and chapter ends. Luke goes on a little bit longer and ends his chapter with the lineage of Jesus in verses 23 through 28. In both Luke and Mark's accounts, we learn that John the Baptist is imprisoned for his critique of the leaders of the time. We will cover this storyline in the final episode for March this year, 2023. Mark's accounts are more succinct and condensed and so covers more narrative ground in each chapter. And the latter half of Mark 1 provides narration for events that we will cover in next week's episode. Before we end out the episode, we wanted to share a review we recently received that really made us light up. This is written by Burke Mama 12 and they titled their review, Helps Me View Scriptures in a New Way. They say, quote, I love listening to this podcast each week to hear a different take on the stories I've heard over and over my entire life. I've learned so much and have always appreciated getting a new perspective and a new way to interpret each story. Thank you for all your hard work, end quote. Oh my goodness, Burke Mama 12. Thank you for taking the time to share your appreciation and love for the podcast. One of the big reasons that Elise and I started doing the podcast is because we wanted something more from our gospel doctrine discussions than the same perspectives over and over again. We're thrilled to hear that our work is helping reignite and re-excite readers of scripture to find something new and unexpected. We really believe for us, and we hope it's the same for all y'all, that this is where the love for sacred text really comes alive. Thanks, friends. We love you. We'll see you next week. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we're grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you showed your support by sharing the podcast, leaving us a loving rating on iTunes, or connect with us on Instagram as the Faithful Feminists. We're deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so, so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends! Bye, friends!